a lot of psychology has been really colored by like this Cartesian split that says that mind and matter are separate. And so eco psychology is kind of a way of bringing that study back into proper context in the understanding that we are not separate from nature, that we are nature, that we're a part of nature. And that if we're going to understand who and what we are and how we operate and everything as human beings, that we need that context, that we need that we need to recognize ourselves as a part of a part of this web of life as participants in it. And so I think that's kind of what eco psychology does is it puts us back in proper context and really takes a fresh look at what it is to be alive here. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Gennari. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Hey Change podcast. We're so excited to share this episode with you today because we talk with Aaron Gabriel, who is a developer relations engineer at Google with a big passion for both living and technological systems. Furthering his education with a master's in eco-psychology at Naropa University, he's passionately exploring how we as humans can more effectively find ourselves as embedded participants within the web of life and begin to see how we as a society may shift paradigms away from industrial growth towards a life-sustaining society. At Google, Aaron gets the opportunity to interact with and build solutions for the communities of developers using Google's cloud platform. He's also actively engaged in a community within Google, looking to explore how they can, as Googlers, better help with the current climate crisis in our world. Aaron and I discussed what we can do to restore our spiritual relationship with nature, as well as the power we have as employees within workplaces to create a culture of emergence and spark positive change. I think a lot of it ties back to a passion for paradigm shift. I remember a conversation I had uh, with my dad sitting in his garage many, many years ago. He was like talking about ancient Egypt and like how it's all of a sudden at this one time it was like just civilization just like exploded and all these new things happened. And he was like, and he said, he thinks that's happening now that like we're reaching this point where there's like a radical revolution of consciousness happening for, for humanity. And at the time I'm like, I don't know, Joe. I mean, like things are always changing. Things are always evolving. I don't know that there's like this sudden shift. And a number of years later, I'm like, ah, I kind of kind of see what he was what he was pointing at. And so that and just a number of things along my path um, have kept alive this kind of interest in paradigm shift and how how this radical revolution of consciousness can come about, how humanity can shift to begin to live in a really different way. And so that's kind of been a big part of my path for a while. And so after kind of being away from a lot of society civilization and while I kind of worked as an engineer and then went on a path that led me away from technology and just kind of like connecting with different communities, intentional communities, traveling around with caravans of hippies, doing just like 
kind of free spirited going to festivals, gatherings, all that. I kind of did that for a number of years, but over the past like couple of years, it was like really clear to me. It's like, I want to really find a way to participate in a much more integral way. And I want to be, I also want to like deepen my education and go back into school. And so I started looking around at different master's programs and um, Naropa, which is here in Boulder, Colorado, um, came up as like a clear one. And I was looking through and I saw eco-psychology and it just like really landed in. I've had like an interest in like systems thinking, living systems. And a lot of that was kind of described in there. And then just this, what they pointed to about the human nature connection really, really sparked something in me. And so I kind of just decided to go with that. And that started really a new, a new depth, a new layer for my journey. So the definition of eco-psychology, would you say, is just finding that interdisciplinary connection between humans and nature? Or what is like the um, right way of looking at that's it? That's a big part of it. To me, like the simplest way of defining eco-psychology is it's the study of what it is to be alive. Like, who are we and what are we as a part of this web of life, this interconnected web of life? And so that's kind of, I think, what psychology is meant to be. The psyche, psyche points to like that which moves us points to breath, soul, spirit. But a lot of psychology has been really colored by like this Cartesian split that says that mind and matter are separate. And so eco-psychology is kind of a way of bringing that study back into proper context in the understanding that we are not separate from nature, that we are nature, that we're a part of nature. And that if we're going to understand who and what we are and how we operate and everything as human beings, that we need that context that we need that we need to recognize ourselves as a part of a part of this web of life as participants in it and so i think that's kind of what eco psychology does is it puts us back in proper context and really takes a fresh look at what it is to be alive here wow deep so can you maybe give some examples of someone who might be awakening to this idea of eco psychology to someone who may have been very oblivious been very oblivious to the connectedness before and thought that it's me, a human body, there's stuff in my life, and then there's something else out there called nature. And then to wake up to this realization that we are nature. Is there a way to maybe give some practical examples of like what that could look like? Um, so, so if I'm following you right, like what, what that looks like of understanding that and kind of where it moves from. Um, I think, I think a big part of it is like, if we can start to recognize our own ways of operating, if we can really like get attentive to what's happening inside of us and like how we're thinking, like we're often not really aware of how we're thinking. And so we, we like take a lot of our own thoughts, our own bias, our own conditioning for granted as if they're actually true. Um, and so I think like being able to start really being attentive to that, to start being attentive to like, Oh, why? Like I have, I have this conditioned thought that says that, that I'm separate from the world. Like we've been told that for a long time. We've been told like that we're separate from the world, that as humans, we are above. We're like this special, special kind of life form that has this unique capacity for, for reason and all of these things. And that we're like totally distinct from everything else. Um, and so I think it kind of starts with like recognizing that conditioning, recognizing that we've been, been programmed in a way to think, to think that, and then starting to question is that, is that actually true? Is it actually true that I'm, I'm separate from above? And I think if we really look at it, we say it's not true. We see that like, if we look at life, life is this like vast continuum of, of evolution. If we look at chimpanzees, um, I read some recently, um, like 
we are closer genetically to chimpanzees than chimpanzees are to gorillas. And so like we are very much a part of like the great ape family. And if we look at chimpanzees, we see a lot of similarities in our own behavior. We see this capacity for reason. We see this capacity to, to use language. And so starting to question our own ideas about how separate we might be as humans, um, I think is a big part of it and starting to recognize like this continuum. Um, and, and then just like really from there, just like getting in touch with the natural world around us and starting to like see the reflections in that, like, okay, that tree outside is, is a living being as well. And there's, there's commonalities between, between me and that. And like, I think building this relationship with the natural world and really getting curious about the natural world can help to reveal to us like a bit about our, our own true nature and help to help us to find our context back in that. Yeah, it's, it sounds to me, it's almost like we've been conditioned to, in a way where we can actually accept equal side, because if we don't feel like it's part of us, like I could never watch my brother get killed right in front of me, right? Because it's, he's my family, you know, like it's, he's my blood and flesh and blood. But if we are taught, and I'm not saying this is, is, this is intentional either, it's just like how society has progressed over all the years, but if we are conditioned to think of nature as something separate, then we can kind of distance ourselves from that pain. Um, but I think you kind of touched upon this a little bit in the beginning. I think what's happening now as we are awakening on, you know, across the field, um, I think what's happening is that we are starting to recognize that connection again. And I have spoken and written some about eco grief and what that looks like. I'm not an expert in any way, but I'm someone who can get deeply touched when nature is killed. But, you know, it's like, what I'm getting at is like, I think what's happening right now, and please tell me what you think too, is that we are awakening to another way of sensing everything around us, nature, other people, even the shift in society. And it's getting harder and harder to ignore the fact that the world is slowly dying. It's not just about, oh, if I turn on the news, I see that it's dying. It's like, no, I can feel it even though I'm not close to it. Is that making sense? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. And I think you really touched on something of how we can turn away from like ecocide, turning away from like the killing of the world because, because we've disassociated with, with the natural world. And so, yeah, like you said, it's like if our immediate family dies, we feel that grief. It's, it's, difficult to be with but we our conditioning lends us to like not not feel that when the amazon rainforest burned down because we don't we don't recognize that the amazon rainforest is also is also our family and so i think you really really pointed to that um really well and i also think um this bit about we can turn on the news and see okay there's death all around us but we can also like feel that that I had an interesting experience. A friend of mine like posted something about feeling a lot of, a lot of grief for the world and just all the, all the death. And then there were some people who just came and like mansplained, like, well, you should just turn off the mainstream, mainstream media and, and just feel good about it. And it's like, no, that's, that's not it. Like there is, there's pain in the world. There's pain in, in my community. And like, we shouldn't just bury our heads in the sand. That is not a real solution for dealing with the pain of the world. Um, and so I think there's so much conditioning that's like, we should just shove our head in the dirt and ignore it. And when I think what's really needed is for us to be with it and feel it. And yes, we can listen to like the media and what's happening around us. We can also just like really open ourselves up to feel what's happening in the world. And it's, it's right here. It's alive. Yes. And that is something I learned the hard way 
becoming a climate optimist because when I started this journey, what, seven, eight years ago now, I thought that the, the fastest way to be a climate optimist was to only pay attention to all the positive news and, you know, seek them out and hold on to them tightly and share them with the world and just ignore all the bad stuff. And I have been more anxious in the past seven years than I've been before my climate optimist journey, because <laughs> it's interesting how like you're not fooling anyone and the very least yourself and your body is still remembering. And I think there is this added layer of the connectedness with nature that we feel and we sense. And I think if anyone's listening right now who might be like, oh, I might know what they're talking about. Like if you feel grief for seemingly no reason, or if you feel sad for seemingly no reason, it could be where you're just like feeling the pain of the world right now. And there is a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of destruction. And I think it's essential that we allow ourselves to tap into that and to grieve, to grieve that because the way out is not by if through ignorance. Like you said, we can't just dig our heads into the ground and think like, oh, I'll just stay here and wait out the ride. You know, it's not going to work. Um, so thank you for pointing that out. And do you have any tips for people I take it that you're kind of a climate nerd as I am and love, love to be in nature, but I live in like the middle of New York. I am fortunate enough to have a park right next to me. So I do go for walks in nature every day, but is there a way you think to connect to nature without having to immerse yourself in nature or is it essential that we do seek out that connection on a physical level? I think both. I think, I think going for like walks is really important. Like I love the practice of forest bathing where you're like going through a walk in the forest and really engaging your senses. We've gotten really disconnected from our sensory experience. And so like really bringing our attention to like, what am I seeing? What am I hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling? I think bring, like really engaging our sensory experience in nature is a beautiful way to, way to reconnect. And I think that's necessary, but I don't think we should like only do that. I think we should be engaged with our sensory experience here. I think we should recognize that we're never, we're never apart from nature. Like we are nature. And so if we, just as we can engage our like senses to like be with that tree outside, I can also engage my senses to be with my, my heart beating, my like breath flowing. And, and this is an immediate access to nature here. And I can also just like recognize that even, even these walls around me, this seems very unnatural, but the truth is everything in this world is an expression of nature. Like humans are an expression of nature. Even all of our weird abstractions and thought that is in itself, in itself an expression of nature. And so these walls aren't a separation from the natural world. They're just another expression of the natural world. And my skin's not separating me from the world. It's connecting me to the world. Mm. And so I think we can like really start to contemplate how, how we've built up all these ideas that separate us, but that those ideas aren't actual. And so I think like the part of really looking to understand, questioning our own conditioning, questioning our idea of our like separateness from the natural world, I think that's really important. And when we, when we can like come into a place like that, we can start to recognize our connection to the natural world, even if we're not out in like a beautiful mountain forest. It's interesting because my husband has actually been saying this quite a lot. And I always not argue, but I challenge him. But if I ever find myself going down the rabbit hole, like, oh, I hate all this stuff in our world and technology and this and that. And he goes, it's all nature though. And I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> he goes, it all came from the earth at some point. Yes, we may have man-made it into something different, but it's all a piece of nature. And I guess I'm starting to see that now. And I'm starting to understand that, yes, it is. And I think maybe that is also another way of us I don't know, just appreciating everything in life and adding an additional layer of value to what we have because it did extract from nature at some point. 
And even though it may have come through a very toxic process, if we did take this material out of nature and we made something out of it and so love it and respect it and take care of it and make sure it doesn't go back into like some landfill of some sort. Um, but that's very interesting. And I think too, I mean, we can, we can care for and miss and love our family. Like I can think of my brother back in Sweden and really feel like he's here and like sense his energy, although he's not right next to me. And we can do the same thing with nature. Although you don't have the opportunity in the middle of the day to leave the office and step outside, you can just take a second to tune in and just remember that we're all part of nature and just come back to that slowness. I think for me, that's a big theme lately. It's like, yes, climate action. We have to accelerate all the things we can do to figure this out. That's called climate change. But at the same time, a big part of that challenge is actually just to be here and to recognize that we may have a lot of answers right within us. And, you know, it's also about just tuning in and recognizing that we're part of a bigger system. Yeah. I also love just like, here, here's like a picture of nature right there that it's an abstraction, but it can connect me. I've got like a few plants sitting around my room. Any of those is a reminder. It's that direct connection. Um, in eco-psychology, we, we study like that. We look at that connection to like things around, but also like a, a pet. A pet is, while it is domesticated, it's still a lot more in touch with its wildness than most of us are as humans. And so having having a relationship with like that pet, it reflects our own wildness back to us. I had a I had a kitten for about a, about a year. He, he he passed on, which was a big grieving moment for me. But the journey we had together revealed so much because he was such a wild cat. I, I let him let him roam free, do all of his things. And he was he was so wild. He was like this little like Black Panther for me. And just relating with him, like really connected me to my own wildness in a big way. And I felt too pets and animals in general just remind us of what's actually important. I think so many mm -hmm. times in life, we just live by the, these stories that we make up and I have to finish by this deadline and this and that. And she didn't get back to me. <laughs> and all these things, all this drama, it's just like, okay, get down to earth. <laughs> You're just creating all this yourself. What's actually real. And I think having a connectedness to nature, to the present moment, to, to animals just helps ground you. And I'm going to be the one raising my hand right now. Cause I almost every, once every single day, I go out into the park right next to me, which is in the middle of New York, Manhattan and I hug a tree. Yes. I do look around like if someone's seeing me right now, cause it's a little bit awkward, <laughs> But at the same time, I'm like, if someone sees me, who cares? I'm hugging a tree and I'm going to make it cool. It yeah. Does. Hopefully somebody sees you and they're like, oh, I should <laughs> hug trees too. Hopefully that gives them permission to also do that. Because I think that's like an urge in all of us. I would, I would travel across the country a lot and I would be driving for like hours and hours. I would just stop at a rest area, go hug a tree for three minutes and then be good to keep going. So much more important than an ice latte, I feel. It gives you more energy yeah. than any cup of caffeine <laughs> in the world. <laughs> oh, I love it. So what would you say is missing in the climate story right now? Inclusion. Recognizing the part that we play and recognizing the presence of all of it. A lot of like the climate fears, like things are going to, things are going to be screwed in like 10 years and 20 years and five years. It's like, no, things are, things are kind of like messed up right now. And they've been messed up for a while. And it's not just the extreme weather events. It's the imbalance. It's the species extinction. It's the, the like burning of the, of the rainforest. That's not just bad because it might threaten the like global climate. That's bad because that is ecocide. That is, that is things dying. It's also like, the, the climate crisis, the, this imbalance in our biosphere is 
inseparable from like the imbalance in our society. The current system of capitalism, not only are we exploiting the earth and extraction from the earth, we're also exploiting people. Labor has been exploited. People are not cared for. Like people are, we don't value the well-being of people. And so I think we really need to be really inclusive in our perspective and recognize that this is a thing that's affecting all of us and it's affecting all of us, all of us right now. And so I think really like looking at how this crisis is much bigger than just how much CO2 in our atmosphere. And it's much more about an imbalance that's deeply present in our biosphere and in our human society. Um, and that imbalance is what we really need to address. When I'm listening to you talk, I, I agree with everything. I'm also seeing this increased level of, I don't know, urgency. And um, I don't know, I feel like there's such a difficult balance between recognizing the issue and being immersed in the issue and then not lose hope. And what keeps coming back to me, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, is that there needs to be a level of spirituality involved. And again, maybe back to what you said in the beginning, and I would actually love to hear what you, because you said that at first when you heard your friend say, there's going to be this big shift in human consciousness and whatnot. And you were like, I don't know. And then suddenly you started to see that in the world. And you're like, I understand that what you're talking about. What, what kind of things did you see that shifted your perspective? And then what, what are your thoughts on that part of like spirituality as a part of the climate movement? And do you think there is a reckoning right now that we may not be able to see yet, but looking back hindsight in a few years, we'll be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Hmm. I think, I think why, why I couldn't see it as much then is at that, at that point, I'm a junior, senior in college. I'm, I'm still studying computer science at school. I've started to have like some experiences that are like connecting me to a deeper spirituality, but I hadn't really like opened to see a lot of what was going on in the world. I was in a path where it's like, okay, I'm graduating college. I'm going to go and go and work in, work in a startup doing engineering. I, I love culture. I love travel. I love exploring. So I had that, that spiritual urge to explore and know, but I hadn't really like gone off and like met all of these different communities and seen all these people looking at different things. And I think a lot of that travel that I kind of opened into for a number of years, that connected me to a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives. And especially a lot of people who were really like pointing to like, there's some big issues in the world. And like, there is a need for this transition. Um, and I hadn't, hadn't really seen that. And some of that was also coming from a bit of a one-sided perspective. And like, I had to learn to integrate a lot of the perspectives I re received in that time to be able to see truly holistically. Um, I think in terms of like, what's gonna like really help the world see, I think, I think it's like really coming. I think that we, there are so many crises that are happening in the world that it's causing people to take a deeper look. The climate crisis is a huge one and it's forcing us to take a look at like, how are we treating our earth? Um, but also like we're seeing a mental health crisis, COVID and everything is happening. Everybody's like taking a look at what's happening in their life. There's like this great disturbance. Um, a lot of people are like, wow, I'm not happy at work. I'm not happy with my job. People are like, I'm not okay with working for like slave labor, like wages. Like I'm not okay with that. I'm seeing like here, here in Colorado, like King Supers employees have been doing a big strike, demanding better wages. I'm seeing so much of that. So many people like standing up and be like, how we are being treated is not fair. And so there's like this mental health crisis, all of it's leading to like this economic crisis and a lot of things because things are falling apart. And so I think there's just a lot of chaos and disturbance in the world right now. And I think 
it is creating a beautiful opportunity for us to look deeper. I think as humans, we're really conditioned to look away from things. So it, that's not disturbance is not a guarantee that people will look, but I also have a lot of faith because I see so many people who are pointing so many people are like, Hey, here's what's happening. And he, people are doing a really good job articulating a lot of this, especially over like the past five or 10 years. Some of the books I've read that have come out in the past five or 10 years really point to like this really holistic living systems view, all of it. And I think just the emergence of a lot of like really new and coherent thought in that space combined with all of this disturbance is creating a really beautiful opportunity for us to sort of reassess as humanity and see if we can kind of reorganize our society in a way that can really work for all people and for all life. I was actually just listening to a different podcast from the BBC climate question it's called, and they were talking about how it's right now all the countries, you know, net zero by 2030, 2050, all their goals are heavily reliant on technology that doesn't exist yet, which is great. You know, like we have to set goals and then just hope that it'll kind of emerge as we go along. But at the same time, we don't have the technology. It's like just in very, very early stages, like an idea or like a prototype, which is not at all like a physical thing that might work. So that's scary to know for one. At the same time, it's good that they're having optimistic views in the future and like our ability to figure this out, which is great. And we need that motivation, right? Like you put a man on the moon with that kind of motivation. So we do need those like very aspirational goals. But everyone who was interviewed in this podcast were like, well, this is a great solution, but we also need to heavily reduce the amount of carbon we put into the atmosphere. And so there needs to be this element of like a shift in our consciousness and what we just take for granted and how we live our lives. And so I think we should not overlook what you just talked about and the fact that a huge part of the climate movement is going to come from us, the individual, just taking a look at that chaos and saying, how can I emerge from this a different person? And I think we tend to forget that when it comes to climate change, it's, it's about human beings. Yes, it's about technology. It's about renewable sources. It's about all of these things, but it's really about us taking or finding that courage to go deeper within and say, what do I want out of life? How do I reconnect with nature? How do I take that bold step of actually just slowing down and say, I'll send this tomorrow, not today, because I need time to just reset myself or whatever it looks like. Um, I'm not saying like you challenge your work positions or you get fired, but you know, it's, it's like, I think we're not talking enough about the fact that we as humans need to change. And that's a beautiful opportunity because we don't need to find the, the next technology or buy the right expensive sustainable products, we can start with ourselves right now just to go within and ask those questions. Um, it's scary, sure, but it's also very empowering. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was reading a book recently, uh, Emergent Strategy by Adrian Murray Brown. And like, she talks a lot about like emergence and about complex systems. And like in complex system, change comes from relatively simple interactions. And so we get really caught up in like, all of these big solutions, but they're still from this top-down hierarchical mentality. And we're not really questioning our assumptions in that. Like a lot of these solutions are still like, well, nature's trying to kill us. So we're gonna, we're gonna fight back and we're gonna put up all, all, all these things. We're gonna like do all this like geoengineering. And like some of that, it can, it can have a place. I'm not, not like judging that entirely, but we're not questioning often our fundamental assumptions around that. We're not questioning the the core thinking that comes from it. Like it's still caught up in this mechanistic paradigm, this, the conquest of nature, like the conquest of nature has been the story of the last 300 years for most of humanity. 
And so like a lot of these technological solutions are still in this conquest of nature, whereas we're not, we, I, I think what is really needed is a fundamental shift to look at how we can work with nature to, to bring balance. And I think Adrian Brown points to this a lot in emergent strategy. What's needed is for us to really change how we're, how we're relating to one another, because it's those relatively simple interactions that bring the complex change. And so if we can, if we can just change how we are in our day-to-day interactions, if we can change how we're, how we're relating to each other in our organizations, that can sort of bring this like change from the inside out that can actually like bring a fundamental change to like the underlying structures of our society. And that's, I think, what's going to bring the real change. And that's not doing that instead of all of these technological solutions, that interchange needs to work with the technological solutions so we can like bring about the change in the way we're thinking so that as we use technology to address these problems, we're using technology to work with nature, not to continue to try to conquer nature. It's not so much technology will save us, it's we will work with technology to keep moving forward. And it's very much about the prophecy of the eagle and the condor, right? Um, where nature and indigenous wisdom comes together with the new world and technology. And then we meet in the middle and we figure out a new solution, a new way of life. I, I want to believe in that prophecy. So I'm believing in it. Um, yes, and since you, since you brought up companies and, and like what can happen within those systems, you do also work at Google, which is really cool. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the work that you do there and how they are trying to progress this climate movement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I I love I love Google as a company. I love the a lot of the good things we're trying to do, and I also see so much potential for what for what more we can do. And I know so many others, and so it's beautiful to be a part of a part of that um, emergent change inside of Google for us to look at like how we can bring more aliveness into this company and how we can help Google do more to like help address the issues um, in our planet. And so. At Google, I work as a, my primary role is I work as a developer relations engineer. And so a lot of that is writing code, but also communicating and relating with the developer community. Um, so that that meets a lot of my, like, I love to create with code and I love to communicate. And so I love having a job where I get to express and communicate and create and everything in that way. And so most of my, I, I work in, in Google Cloud, specifically cloud storage. And so basically that means like, I'm helping developers who are using Google Cloud tools to use them better and helping helping create demos and things it's like, here's how you can use it, helping to create samples, here's how you can use it. Um, and so it creates a beautiful opportunity to like help those developers use it while also demonstrating the potential to use these tools for, for good. And so one of the projects I'm about to start working on is one where we're basically using a number of Google Cloud technologies together, such as Cloud Storage, Vertex AI, which is one of our artificial intelligence solutions, using sort of those solutions, along with a lot of data from Google Earth Engine, which is an amazing tool that Google has. Google Earth is that tool you can use and zoom in and see all the cool things around the planet. And Earth Engine is something that's kind of tied in with that and brings together a lot of the data. And so people can use that data for all kinds of things. And so in this project, we're kind of going to be using those tools together to be like, cool, here's how you can use this Earth Engine data, along with um, our machine learning, artificial intelligence platforms to Look at how is freshwater changing over time in, in a region? How is the freshwater changing and how might it change so that we can start looking at like where drought is happening? What is causing that? Things like that. 
And so being able to get these insights is an amazing way we can use these technologies to help understand our climate better, understand our planet better, and create solutions that that work work towards that. And so that's one project that I'm working on where I get to weave my role as developer relations engineer together with my passion for working on climate. It's part of this um, really cool project called People and Planet AI. Um, there's a few a few videos on YouTube and projects that have been created so far, and we're working to to bring more. And so that's sort of what I do and and where I uh, am weaving that together. And that people in Planet AI and a lot of that work is part of this really cool community we have at Google, where there's a lot of people that are coming together and looking at how we can explore climate solutions from, from inside of Google. Um, and there's like, Google has this amazing 20% culture where as a Google employee, you're kind of given permission to take 20% of your time to work on something that's not your core work that you're hired for and to oh. explore like some people go and work on another team that they like. Some people go and like work on a tiny little side project. And so this climate community at Google is sort of exploring how in a big way, how we can use a lot of our 20% time to work on climate solutions. And so there's a lot of cool people looking at different things, creating different working groups, things like that. And so that's what's sort of allowed for a lot of creative emergence in the, the climate space at Google. And that kind of lines up with also a lot of like sort of full-time teams at Google working on climate things. We have Google X, which is our moonshots division. And there's a really cool project I love called Mineral, um, which is working on like regenerative agriculture solutions and food security. Uh And so things like that are emerging out of Google. And as this climate community continues to grow and get more organized in what we're doing, it's really, I feel, propelling a lot more of these really cool climate solutions from inside of Google to to come into the world and like help it in a good way. It makes me so happy to know that there are people like you working at a company like Google, you know, it's like, good, good. Put your, your excellence to work <laughs> so we can all use it. Um, and we've seen some products come from Google just recently, you know, now you can calculate your flight and they will tell you which is the most eco-friendly, you know, flight route to get to where you want to go. And same thing with, I think cars, right. So it'll tell you, this is the fastest way, but this is the most eco-friendly way or something like that. Sorry if I'm not getting this correct, but, you know, no, using, yeah, yeah, using all the data that you have access to can actually provide a lot of positive change in the world. And I guess I want to plug this to anyone who's listening. Not everyone works at Google and Google, you know, is a very forward thinking company, but I think there's a lot of opportunity in just looking at your current landscape and maybe asking your boss if there can be some sort of community within your company where you can maybe not get 20%, but some sort of chunk of your time to just explore new ideas and connect with other teams. And, and of course, bring this to the table in a way where like, oh, we can make more money because who knows what's going to come from this. So like, I think having that emergent culture within a company can be beneficial, not just for the planet, but also for the company itself. And so take that with you to your next meeting. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, a book I've been reading a lot um, using it for my studies called uh, The Hidden Connections by Fritjof Capra. And uh, Capra talks a lot about how the aliveness, the aliveness in an organization resides in its communities of practice. And when he talks about communities of practice, he's talking about like informal self-generating networks of communication. And so when you have people who are like communicating and talking and like having a common aligned purpose, that is bringing aliveness into an organization. And so we need, we need these networks of people who are talking. And if we're talking about things that are like aligned with the natural world, that really brings in a sense of aliveness. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think you're totally on point. I think more, more people should be really networking with people inside of their organizations and bring these things forward. And like, 
seeing, yeah, bring it to their bosses, bring it to people and being like, hey, this is something we could be looking at because doing so is not just fulfilling that sense of meaning and purpose that's so valuable for us to have in our workplace. It's also contributing to our workplace moving forward in the world. And like, we're seeing the values of humanity change and we're starting to value nature and things a lot more than we have for the past few like centuries. And so companies need to be able to make the shift, the shift towards valuing if they want to really continue to survive and thrive in this changing world. And so it's necessary, not just for like the well-being of people and the planet, it's also necessary for like the well-being and the continuance of organizations to be able to make this shift. I have an exercise that I love. It's called keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. It's actually a quote, but I stole it. And when you practice this exercise, you give yourself permission to dream without borders, because honestly, we cannot imagine the unimaginable. And if we just look back in history, we know that if we had told you know someone back in 1922 that explained an iPhone for them, they've been like, you're crazy, right? <laughs> so like, there's so much that can happen that we have no clue about right now. And so if you were to dream without borders, what would, what would our world look like 20 years from now? Yeah, 20 years is a long time. A lot can change in 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Um, yeah. I, in 20 years, what I would love to see and what I think, think can really, really happen, um, a, lot, a lot more intentional communities, a lot more eco-villages, a lot more people sort of living in communal ways, but not just out on these like 40 acre plots of land where people are doing it, but, but within, within cities more networks of communities. So like even in urban lands, more networks of communities and like that kind of emerging in a lot of different places. And so I think, I think that's one of the biggest things that I think will, will be shifting is more networks of communities in a way that is really intertwined and active and engaged such that those like networks of communities are able to bring change at the systemic level. Because if we have, if we have 10 or 20 intentional community eco villages here in the Boulder area, 100, 100, 200 eco villages here in the Boulder area, whatever. But then we also have all of these people living in like the town of Boulder and they're all networked. That that creates a lot of aliveness in the Boulder community. And that aliveness is very attracting and it brings people in. It brings people and it gets people wanting to wanting to engage, wanting to participate. And and that has this way of if we're really inclusive in our way of being, of attracting people in all walks of life that also influences like the local politics, the policies, everything that emerges. And so that's sort of what I see as these networks of communities um, and networks of communication happening in cities, states, countries, world, like the whole world in such a way that it's really influencing positive change. And through that, that that positive change is able to influence policies and everything to support even more of this and kind of create this bring bring communities and policy and everything really back into much closer relation such that we're able to create these feedback cycles that really accelerate a lot of change and bring a lot of aliveness into the world and through that like bring forward this paradigm that gets people back in relationship with the world and create systems and structures that support that being back in relationship with the world i think and i haven't given this a lot of thought before, to be honest with you, but that makes so much sense. It feels like if you have that sort of community aspect, you don't want to go. 
you want to be immersed in the community, you, you can almost get like a FOMO from not being involved with all the community things going on. You know, like if there's a block party or whatever, it's like you want to be there for it. So I think this craving for for travel, but also craving to fill, like to fill our lives for something that's just, you know, filling up the void that we have inside. I think that void is not going to exist in the same way because we do get that sense of fulfillment from our neighbors, our community. And we're participants in that community. It's not just about, oh, I'm voting once every four years or whatever it is. It's also the fact that we're contributing daily to the community. We're taking, it's a give and take. And I think yeah. once you start to establish those networks, there is just, it's more joy and you don't need yeah. as much in your life to be happy and healthy. I mean, just look at the blue zones. The, mm-hmm. the, the people who live the longest in the world all have a very strong sense of community in their lives. And so it's proven that it's needed for happiness as we need it for well-being and, and longevity. But I think, and I know it's just, it's one of the missing links to ecological health as well. Yeah. Because it's like, once we have that, once we have that sense of fulfillment, like we have that, that need, we, we feel whole because we're part of something, something greater. And it's like, we have those connections that really like made us feel whole then we're we're, like you said it's like we're not seeking to fill that fill that void and it's like if we're not wasting so much energy seeking to fill that void what can blossom from our creative potential then and what can we create for the world then from this sense of wholeness you know what this tells me too and i'm urging anyone who's listening right now to start practicing this shift right now because we can help fuel this transition it's just about what can we do today to create more of a community around where we live right now and just making connections with the guy next door or the, the bus driver who comes by our street every single day, or like whatever it is, like you can start small, but by slowly integrating those connections, I think you will recognize how much value that brings. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point you're making because it's like, it doesn't have to be these big things. If you want to change, change the world, you don't have to go and get a bunch of people that you're work to talk about like climate and bring that to the bosses. That's a great idea. That's amazing to do that. But like change can start by going up to like somebody at your work and asking, how's your day? And like, do you want to sit down and, and grab some tea and talk about who you are and who I am and like get to know each other, like getting to know each other, getting to know our neighbors, getting to know our local community, getting to know these people who we might have interactions with, but we never like actually get to know them. That, that bond that bond is life and that bond is bringing aliveness into wherever we are. And that aliveness is to me, what is going to heal this planet. Mm. Boom. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, this has been such a lovely conversation, Aaron. I feel like we could <laughs> sip some tea. I feel like you would be a tea person. I don't know why. <laughs> I was going to say why. Oh, like tea. Um, it's a magic tea. Who knows what's in it uh, and talk for uh-huh. hours. Um, maybe one day I need to go uh-huh. to Colorado sometime soon. So anyways, yes, um, please come visit. Yeah. <laughs> the last question we'd like to end all our conversations with is, are you a climate optimist? And if so, why or why not? I think from this conversation, it should be clear that I'm a bit of a, a bit of a climate optimist and I think I think my reason why, and to me, a climate optimist doesn't mean that I don't think there's, I don't think that we're in a bit of a shitstorm for humanity right now. But I think what what it really means to me, like yes, we are facing major things. Like things may get worse before they get better. But I'm a climate optimist in that I have total trust that we are capable and that we are doing it of bringing about this revolutionary this revolutionary change, and. Part of the climate optimism comes from like 
knowing that life is resilient as heck, or life is really, really freaking resilient. First off, even if way before we like some people are like, well, we need to save life on this planet. I'm like, no, we need to keep it like hospitable for us. Cause if it becomes a climate that's not suitable for us, there's still going to be life here. Those mushrooms, they'll decompose everything. Life is constantly finding ways to cycle things. And we think, oh no, we've created all this waste in the atmosphere. But what life always does is life finds a way to use waste and bring it back into the cycle. So how long life takes to evolve to use that waste to be seen. But I mean, we're already seeing mushrooms like fungi that are like having these little like evolutions without our even prompting that they're starting to understand how to eat and use plastics, things like that. And so like life is always growing and evolving and it's resilient and like it will survive. It will thrive. That's what it, that's what it does. And so part of it is that trust and faith in the resilience of life. And, and also I have trust and faith in the resilience of humanity. Like we, as an expression of life are a very resilient species and we do a good job of making it through some really tough things. And so I really trust that life finds a way and that we will find a way to be a part of life. Yes, there's some concerns about like the way that we're living and the out of harmony, but I see how many people now are really giving voice to what needs to give voice. It's like in our darkest hour, like our light shines the brightest. And I'm seeing writers like Fritjof Capra, Adrian Marie Brown, Jeremy Lent with Web of Meaning, so many writers who are speaking to, to this emergent emergence of this new paradigm and so many people who are strong leaders and so so the resilience of life the resilience of humanity and the emergence of so many strong leaders finding ways to express and lead humanity in this in this like inner transformation is what gives me faith that we will make it through this and we will change the tides and change the way we're living how that happens i don't know when that happens i don't know i'm hopeful that it's in my lifetime. I'm hopeful that it's in the next 20 years. I think that's I think that's a reasonable hope. I don't know, but I have total confidence that we will find a way to live in harmony and that we are finding a way to live in harmony. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?